Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Hello, I'm Jonathan Moles, and you're listening to FT Startup Stories, a weekly show in which I talk to founders about the joys and challenges of starting a business. Katie Hill Gottesman founded Commuter Ads with Russ Gottesman, her business partner and husband, after what she describes as a eureka moment during a journey home from a baseball match in Chicago. After the baseball game, we were taking public transportation home, and the next stop after the baseball game is Chinatown. And when everybody lets out of the stadium, the train is packed. You can't move. And a couple people get off the train at Chinatown and more people smush on. And Russ looked at me and said, you know, they should play a little ad right here and get some of these people off the train and into one of these Chinese restaurants for dinner after the game. You know, 99 cent dim sum on game nights, something like this. And people would perk up and say, that sounds good. Hop off the train and go get a meal. And I think part of why the idea resonated was that he and I were both at the time working in advertising. So we really understood the industry fairly well. He understood the sales side of advertising. He was managing an office of radio sales. And I was doing technology projects at a huge ad agency in Chicago at the time. So we both sort of had the background to be able to put the pieces together about how this might work. And what we did was we called up a friend who had done some public affairs work as a consultant at the Public Transportation Authority in Chicago and shared with him our idea. And he said, you know, that does make a lot of sense. Let me set you up with a meeting with the Transportation Authority and see what they say. The Chicago Transit Authority at that point was facing a huge budget crisis. So we saw this as a way to get new private funds into the system And we thought, there's got to be a reason why they're not doing this. And they said, no, they said, nobody's ever brought this idea to us. So we're sitting there and we're realizing that this idea is solving problems for a lot of different folks. It's getting money into the transit systems. Transportation needs more funding. It's getting advertisers access to packed trains and buses full of people that happen to be passing by their business every day and just may or may not know that they exist. And then at the same time, as public transit riders ourselves, we're realizing oftentimes it's the riders that bear the burden of the financial problems in terms of fares increasing. And so this is possibly a way to help offset fare increases and keep service levels high. So from there, the idea kept gaining momentum. We started writing a business plan and launched from there. You were an unknown entity to the transport system. Why do you think they took a punt on you? Yeah, you know, that's actually a great point. And it was definitely a barrier to entry. Transportation authorities are not inclined to take a lot of risk. Naturally, they've got a lot of things that they need to worry about, safety first, operations. So two kids with an advertising idea is not going to rise to the highest levels of their priorities. And the other thing that's interesting about working with the transportation systems is that as government entities, oftentimes there's a bid process that's required to work with them, which means that they have to issue a request for proposals. So they have to ask you to do business with them. 
And it's really hard for them to ask for something that doesn't exist in the marketplace. And we just, we kind of got lucky. This was one of those lucky breaks that happens along the way. But when we were talking to Chicago, somebody in one of those meetings said, I think there's a transportation system somewhere in Ohio that's looking for advertising. And Ohio is a Midwest state, several hours from where we were. We'd never been, actually. And we did a little bit of research, and sure enough, we found that there was a request for proposal in Dayton, Ohio, looking for traditional advertising on public transportation, signs on the side or on the inside of the buses. But somewhere buried on page 36 in the 16th section There was two sentences along the lines of, if you have other ideas, we'd like to hear from you. Feel free to propose. And it was the opening that we needed. So it allowed us to put together a proposal for them for our concept, which was location-based digital audio and text scroll advertising. And they accepted our proposal. It made it to the procurement desk because of the way the proposal was written. We pitched. We were awarded a six-month pilot followed by a three-year contract, and that's when we quit our jobs and moved to Dayton, Ohio, and got that business up and running. At this point, we had been working on the idea about nine months. We had won the business plan competition at DePaul University, so we had worked really hard on our pitch and making sure that a lot of the holes were filled, that we were answering the questions that needed to be answered. So the pitch was pretty solid, but I think what might have hooked it for us was on the very last slide of the pitch, all we did was put the number one We said, you will be the first contract that will ever do this idea, and we will move here to Dayton, Ohio, and make sure that this is a success for you. And a little bit of interesting background is Dayton, Ohio has been a manufacturing town for the last 50 years and had fallen a little bit on hard times, but has a tremendous history of innovation. There's a lot of inventions that came out of it. For a long time, there were more patents per capita in Dayton, Ohio than anywhere else, only to be overtaken by the Silicon Valley recently. So there's a real culture there of going for new things and trying new things. And it's really reviving the city now. And we're really happy that they took a chance on us because we celebrated last year. We've paid now into the Greater Dayton RTA. We've paid them over a million dollars as of last year. So their risk has paid off. And we're really proud of that. You were doing something completely new. How does the technology of commuter ads work? That was actually one of the most exciting things when we first were exploring the idea early on. We came up with a way to tap into the existing communication systems that are already on buses and trains. So, for example, when you're on the tube and you hear the announcement, next stop, Victoria Station, what our patents are around is the ability to tap into those systems to use that exact same infrastructure. So our capital costs are really low because the infrastructure is already there to be able to use that same announcement system to then add an, oh, by the way, at Victoria Station is a sandwich shop you have to visit, for example. The management of the actual advertising comes behind that. So, you know, who is your customer? What is their message? What voice do they want to hear? Do they want music behind it? All those kinds of details, making sure that it stays within 15 seconds. It has to be 15 seconds, 30 to 39 words. You know, all those kinds of limits that make sense from an operational standpoint as well is where our technology comes in. Were there any sort of early challenges? Yes. When you do some things for the first time, there are moments where things don't go exactly as planned. And Back in Dayton, that very first pilot program, we arranged to run our first messages, which were just public service announcements at that point. We were testing the concept just with some messaging about, 
you might hear some ads coming up. We've got a new program, 15-second messages along these lines. And we had intended to program the messages to play every 15 minutes. And we were doing this on a Sunday when ridership was low. And, well, the programming wasn't perfect to start, and they played every 15 seconds. So you can imagine, you know, uh, you're going to be hearing some messages, 15 seconds later, you're going to be hearing some messages. (laughs) You know, 15 seconds later, you're going to be hearing some messages. So we were freaking out. We had some wonderful representatives from the Greater Dayton RTA with us that day and helped us get it turned off, first of all, and get it corrected quickly. And again, you know, going to their culture of being open to new ideas and being great partners, they gave us another chance. And we went back the next weekend and it played perfectly. And I'm happy to report that we've never made that mistake again. So it was a tough lesson to learn, but, you know, we learned from it and have had really great execution ever since. Another place where we learned a good lesson early on is that, you know, there's so many things to think about when you're starting a business. And there's some things that are more fun to think about than others. You know, you want to design your logo and pick out your colors and design your first glossy pamphlet or your website. But one of the things that I now highly recommend that young entrepreneurs do first is look at their financial systems. Because what happened to us was we sold our first ad. You know, lo and behold, we're actually signing up customers. Our very very first customer was a $90 contract and she paid us in two $45 checks. And without our financial systems in place, we lost one of the checks. We really don't know what happened to that check. We had to embarrassingly call her up and say, "Uh, we should probably cancel that one because we can't find it. And she offered to write us another one. And we said, no, it's okay. We'll run your campaign. And, And she did renew again. So it came back to us that way. There's a lesson there in keeping customers happy. Absolutely. What about fundraising? Fundraising has been a really interesting experience for us. We have a variety of different types of investors. We started off with the friends and family round, which is not atypical. People who knew us and had a little bit of extra cash and were willing to take a risk on this idea that we were working on. We also entered some business plan competitions and won some early funding from those. And that was actually how we found our first institutional investor. So we won the business plan competition at DePaul University in Chicago. And then when we moved to Dayton, the University of Dayton also had a business plan competition, which was open to the community. So you didn't necessarily have to be just a student there. And we won that one as well. And some Midwest-based VCs were sourcing deals through academic business plan competitions. And as a result of that, we were set up in a meeting. And we really, at that point, weren't looking for VC. We had about $350,000 raised. That was going to give us a nice little runway that sufficed for the plans that we had at that point. But as we were talking to these venture capitalists, they were interested in ad tech. They were focused on the Midwest. We checked a lot of boxes for them. And we thought, well... You know, a million dollars sounds great. Let's take a couple more meetings. But we had also heard that due diligence can be a big time sink. And we didn't want to go too far down that path without having some sense that we were all going to be on the same page. And so we asked to talk about valuation fairly early in the relationship. We had a call and we said to them, so, you know, what do you think our company is worth? And they said, well, what do you think your company is worth? And we said, well, you know, we asked you first. And they said, we think $3 million. And we said, okay, well, we think $5 million. And, you know, it's typical in terms of dilution. An entrepreneur is probably overvaluing their company. Mm -hmm. And a VC is probably undervaluing the company. And so we weren't surprised, but we were happy to know that we were in 
a ballpark. So actually on that call, we said, okay, how about 4.25? And we all agreed 4.25 was going to be the number. And at that point, then it made sense to move forward with exploring the relationship further. And we went forward with due diligence for um, three to four months after that. You know, they're asking for all kinds of documents. We're working on financial models. They're coming in and interviewing us and interviewing the team and looking at our offices and all these kinds of things. And three to four months later, we get a term sheet. And Jonathan, what do you think was the valuation on that term sheet? Go on. It was $3 million. It was their original price. At this point now, we know these people pretty well, and they know us, and we've been working together. And so we pushed back. We said, this isn't the price that we were looking for. And we went back and forth. Then they would come back with a higher valuation, but then there'd be some other prohibitive term that was added that we weren't comfortable with. The relationship suffered a little bit as a result of that, I would say, and we kind of lost some confidence in the representative that we had been working with. And at that point, we asked to talk to some of the other partners. And we said, what if we just talk directly and and try to sort this out? They said, no, you can't talk to the partners. And at that point, we kind of thought this might not be the deal for us. We were just uncomfortable with the situation. And you could have heard a pin drop on the other end of the line. You know, it was pretty quiet. But we were at peace with it. We actually happened to be in the car at that point, driving up to Chicago, which, by the way, we had added as our newest market, all of the suburban bus systems, which had effectively doubled the size of the company in the time that we were going through this due diligence. So we were heading up to Chicago to start working on that market. We were traveling all the time at this point as we were adding markets on. But we shortly after that got a call from one of the partners, the partners that we we had hoped to talk to. And they said, you know, what happened? We understand that you're not going to proceed with the deal. And we explained exactly, we're just not comfortable with this. The terms aren't working out as we had originally thought. The valuation isn't where we hoped. And he said, okay, and he hung up the phone. And again, then we keep jamming along in the car, and we're good to go. And the phone rings again about 30 minutes later, and the partner is on the other end of the phone and says, in the spirit of Christmas, it was the day before Christmas, we're going to give you your 4.25 valuation. And we took the deal. It was what we wanted. We got the terms that we had hoped for, and the million dollars dropped about three months later, and we were up and running. Today, you're a bigger operation. Yes. We've grown from that first contract in Dayton, Ohio, and we're now in 14 cities. We reach over 272 million transportation riders a year, over a billion impressions a year. We paid over a million dollars into Dayton. We paid multiple millions of dollars across all of our markets. So, yeah, we're really proud of that growth. The team is about 12, most of them sales reps. We have thousands of advertisers that are on the air with us. So a lot of great progress. Is there a challenge in being a female founder in the tech and media industry? I will say that being a female in a VC-backed tech company is somewhat lonely, and you have to be very comfortable being the only female in the room. You know, you go to a big conference, and you're one of three, and there's hundreds of men there. And I think at some level, you have to have some thick skin with that experience. I think also you have to be a little bit prepared that... For example, I had a corporate background, and there's certain rules and laws in place to protect women and discrimination and those kinds of things. And those rules and laws don't necessarily apply in an entrepreneurial environment. One of the things in corporate that I had been trained on was that if you're interviewing someone for a job, you can't ask them about their family. And one of the questions that came up when I was going through due diligence, it happened to be at a time when it was just me having coffee with the VC representative. 
And he said, you know, I have to ask this question for my partners. Do you plan to have children? And I wasn't prepared for the question because it was one of those that I just thought would never come up. But I, I answered when the time was right. And that sufficed. We moved on with the conversation and the deal did get done. But, you know, looking back on that, I think I would answer differently today. Having more experience and probably having more confidence now, I think I would tell him now, you know, it's none of your business. And if it lost me a deal, I think I would be okay with it because they're probably not the right partners if they're asking questions that you're not comfortable answering. Katie found one line of questioning from a potential investor rather surprising. I asked Simon Stockley from Cambridge's Judge Business School whether there was any academic evidence that venture capitalists might be prejudiced against female entrepreneurs. Fortunately, there's been quite a lot of academic research looking at how business angels and early stage venture capitalists make decisions and whether those decisions are subject to biases and are entirely rational. Well, it should come as no surprise to anyone that these decisions are full of biases, and the biases can either be conscious or they can be unconscious. There's been a very good piece of research recently by Alison Brooks at Harvard and Laura Huang at Wharton, published in 2014, And what they looked at is gender bias in investor decision-making. And they basically took three business plan pitching competitions in the States, very, very large sample size on the number of pitches. And they also ran two experiments to check for biases in those pitching competitions. What they found, and the results here are very robust, they found that investors prefer attractive men. This was irrespective of race and social class, but investors tend to prefer to invest in people who are like themselves. And so I read this piece of research and then discussed it with a couple of my close friends who happen to be venture capitalists down here in London. And one of them sort of smiled, raised an eyebrow, and they've probably got a point. What do you do if you're not an attractive male? It's going to be harder. There's no doubt about that. I think the most important thing for any entrepreneur to understand who is seeking to raise venture capital is the team. So put together the strongest possible team you can and make sure there's a good spread of skills and backgrounds and expertise. That would be the first thing. Second thing, my advice would be to construct the strongest possible advisory board. So is the answer to include an attractive white male in your team or is it walk away from people who you feel just maybe too prejudiced? My personal inclination, if I was getting those sorts of signals from an investor, is not somebody I'd want to deal with. Because if you've got a great idea, and I think this applies to commuter ads, this is a super idea. You know, I loved finding out about it. And a good team, you will find investment. Interestingly, the 2014 paper did find that when female entrepreneurs pitch what they refer to as gender-typed businesses, for example businesses that are targeting women, which is over 50% of the population, so it's a big market, they tend to be perceived more favourably than men. I asked Katie what she thought was the most important thing she'd learned since starting the business. One of the really cool things about being an entrepreneur is that you get to build an organisation around the principles that you see as most important. And 
I really think that our culture has become as important of an asset as anything on our balance sheet because it really allows us to hire well. It allows us to make decisions according to the things that we know are most important. And it really does impact the effectiveness of the overall organization. And a big piece of that culture for us now, which maybe wasn't so true at the beginning, is trusting our team. You know, when you're in a startup, it's fast paced, it's intense. You know, honestly, we've seen people crash and burn. But when you find the people that really thrive in that environment, it's okay to rely on them and to let them do what they're good at. You know, sort of not sheltering the team exactly, which is something we did a lot in the beginning, but rather being more transparent. People see us on the phones all of a sudden, you know, a couple days in a row, we're in and out of the office, there's people coming in, having meetings. And, you know, instead of just saying like, oh, don't worry about this, just focus on your job. We tell them what's going on. And I think that they feel much more invested as maybe we're distracted with another deal. Other people on the team are asked to step in and fill in and take on more responsibilities. And when they know why they're doing that and what the overall big picture is, they're a lot more inclined to really rock out in whatever new responsibilities that they've been given. And I think that that's been really great for the whole organization. You're also the husband and wife outfit as well. Yeah, that's an interesting dynamic. I mean, a lot of people say, oh my gosh, I could never work with my spouse. And certainly it's not always easy. You know, there are boundaries we had to create. One of the stories we like to tell is that I would wake up in the morning first thing and say to Russ, so the marketing plan, you know, what are we going to do about the marketing plan? And he would say, hold on a second. Like, let me put my feet on the ground first, you know, much less brush my teeth and take a shower before we have to start talking about today's latest crisis or whatever we're trying to tackle that day, which was a totally fair request. And we did have to kind of create some boundaries. There are maybe limits to this openness and honesty. That Yeah, exactly. Be open and honest with the team, but like give your business partner a break now and then. <laughs> yeah. Next week. We talked to an entrepreneur who founded several businesses based on the idea that he could provide a far better service to online customers than high street vendors were offering. In the meantime, if you'd like to catch up on previous episodes, you can visit our special page, ft.com startup. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com.